Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 96, Touring the Solar System. Yep, we're back checking out the local neighbourhood again. There's some new planned robotic missions with those wacky NASA acronyms we all know and love, and also some renewed thinking about getting people out there, and the various problems involved with that. And so, without further ado, let's get out there. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what's all the current fuss about Venus? In June 2021, NASA announced two new Venus missions. Veritas, Venus Emesicity, Radio Science, Insar Tomography and Spectroscopy, Veritas, which is expected to happen in 2028, and Da Vinci Plus, Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry and Imaging Plus which is expected to happen in 2029 or maybe 2030. There's also a recently confirmed European Space Agency mission called Envision, which is planned for the early 2030s. All the launch dates here are a bit speculative, as at this point, none of these spacecraft have been built yet. Da Vinci Plus includes an orbiter and a lander that will bring back direct images from the surface which we haven't seen since the Soviet Venera 13 lander took some snaps back in 1981. And like all the Soviet landers, it's not expected the Da Vinci Plus lander will last more than about 20 minutes under the gruelling surface conditions of Venus, but that's long enough to get some good shots in. And apart from that headline-grabbing stuff, the primary science goals of Da Vinci Plus are actually to investigate Venus's atmosphere. The lander will analyse the atmosphere on its way down to the surface, while the orbiter scans the atmosphere from above. Veritas, although also an orbiter, will mostly investigate Venus's geology, using radar and infrared emission detectors to map the surface. This global mapping will be an update and enhancement to the radar mapping the Magellan mission undertook between 1989 and 1994. It's expected that Veritas will enhance our understanding of volcanology and other geological processes on Venus, as well as looking for evidence of past water on the planet, and maybe it will even find traces of current water in vapour form. These objectives seem optimistic, if current thinking, that the planet is regularly resurfaced by molten volcanic outputs, is true, but properly investigating such possibilities can't hurt. The mission will also try to confirm whether or not Venus has plate tectonics. The mission may just confirm that Venus doesn't have plate tectonics, but there's no harm looking, and either way, the investigation may help us understand how and why plate tectonics works on Earth, since the only other rocky planets we know much about are Earth and Mars, and Mars is pretty much geologically inactive, Venus is a pretty good place to look for new insights into how planets work. And why the sudden flurry of Venus missions? 
Well, no one's saying it's because of the recent announcement of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. Perhaps because this finding remains hotly disputed, as does the suggestion that any phosphine that is there may be a product of Venusian life. There is a real risk that this whole line of thinking could collapse well before the mission's launch, so it makes sense not to announce it as a key goal of the mission. Nonetheless, it is likely that NASA and ESA will gather more data on the presence of phosphine in the atmosphere and its possible origins. Other reasons why it's worth studying Venus include a growing interest in better understanding its extreme greenhouse atmosphere, since we are in the process of growing our own one on a smaller scale here on Earth. And who knows, we may well find some other weird thing that no one was expecting to find, which is what exploration is all about. And it's not like these new Venus missions suddenly popped out of nowhere. They have actually been in the pipeline for years. For example, there had been a Da Vinci mission idea hanging around for years, which then got revised and enhanced into Da Vinci Plus, which then kind of hung around for a few more years. At any point, there is quite a long queue of possible mission projects, where only one or two generally get funding committed from each budget cycle. So it might be the case that the phosphine thing pushed these planned missions up the queue a bit, or it may just be that their time had come. In NASA's case, it has been hitting Mars pretty hard, leaving Venus to be explored by other agencies like ESA and also JAXA. But with lots of countries now having Mars orbiters, and with China now also having a rover on the surface, maybe NASA was also thinking it's time to do something a bit different. This is the middle bit. Well, whatever the motivation, it's good that we're getting out there with our robots and, of course, this ongoing enthusiasm to get out there ourselves. Although we're still not really grappling with the risks involved, not that those risks need to stop us, we just need to start dealing with the risks in a systematic way. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Can our Mars-bound astronauts survive months or years of exposure to space radiation? Well, yes, they can, potentially, but solutions are yet to be agreed on, let alone implemented. A radiation shielding solution for a Mars-bound spacecraft is either going to add a lot of mass, if it's a physical shield, or it's going to draw a lot of power, and still add some mass, if it's a magnetic shield. You also need a solution for extravehicular activities, that is, spacewalks and Mars walks in a shielded spacesuit. Various potential shielding solutions can be found in academic journals and white papers, and various options are being tested in laboratories, including on board the International Space Station. This is all good stuff, but we still haven't really decided what option we'll use for the long journey to Mars, which will supposedly happen in the 2030s. When people talk about space radiation, they generally don't mean electromagnetic radiation. Although X and gamma rays radiating from the sun are also harmful forms of radiation. What people do mean when they talk about space radiation is cosmic rays, 
which are either high-energy protons or more complex nuclei, which have been stripped of the electrons they would normally carry as a cooler, stable atom. Within the solar system, you get cosmic rays coming from the sun, and you also get galactic cosmic rays coming in from outside. While the cosmic rays from the sun are high energy, galactic cosmic rays are really high energy, being particles mostly flung out from supernovae bursts, which then travel through the vacuum of space at close to the speed of light until they reach us. An unmodified spacecraft hull is generally sufficient to protect astronauts from routine levels of solar wind particles, as well as the X and gamma rays emanating from the sun. However, should there be a big solar flare that hurls out a denser burst of particles at higher speeds, you could be in trouble. A cosmic ray particle with enough energy can penetrate and ionise atoms in a ship's hull, which then creates a burst of secondary radiation, essentially subatomic shrapnel, which proceeds inwards towards the astronauts. Galactic cosmic rays are more likely to cause this kind of damage because they move at much higher speed than solar wind particles do, and while galactic cosmic rays are mostly protons, they also include heavier ionised nuclei, and these will carry more kinetic energy than protons moving at the same speed. The injuries caused by cosmic rays are analogous to the injuries arising from various forms of radiation exposure we are familiar with on Earth, which may involve DNA damage leading to cancer or more direct and immediate tissue damage. Space radiation exposure risk starts mounting as soon as you leave the Earth's atmosphere at about 100 kilometres altitude, since even air molecules can provide a small amount of shielding. Once you are above the Earth's magnetosphere, and essentially in interplanetary space, you are completely exposed to space radiation, and there you will find a dynamic balance between the outgoing cosmic rays of the solar wind and the incoming galactic cosmic rays. This balance changes with the solar cycle. At solar maxima, the greater output of solar wind reduces how many galactic cosmic ray particles get through. So there's an argument that it might be safer flying to Mars during a solar maxima, Although, during a solar maxima, you are going to get more solar flares and coronal mass ejections. While those solar particles may be less harmful than the galactic ones, after a big solar flare, there will be a whole lot more of them coming at you. So, what's really safest of all is to fly with adequate shielding. While something like lead might be great, it's darn heavy, so high-density plastics and water are looking like more realistic options. A nanotube-based material called hydrogenated boron nitride is apparently great for incorporating into a spacecraft hull, and it can also be woven into garments, both to wear in the cabin and under a spacesuit. This material will not only stop protons, but the boron is apparently ideal at stopping neutrons which are part of that secondary subatomic shrapnel radiation that happens after a cosmic ray particle first collides with your hull or your spacesuit. So, the good news is, there are potential solutions out there, 
but implementing them still seems a way off. This is the end bit. So, there you go. We've got the science to know how to survive out there. What we need now is some proper experience to sort out any bugs and nail down some proper long-term solutions. This will all cost lots of money, so we should cut out all the flags and footprints missions and start focusing on how to make the big bucks out there. It is possible, we just need to get on and do it. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just like the idea of putting on some hydrogenated boron nitride, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll take the measurements for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.